Hello and welcome to the Crowcast, another episode of the Micro Moment. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the bomb that is the best of microbiology. My name's Tess. And I'm John. Today, we're going to give you our favorite microbe news of November 2020. So, John, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. How about you? I'm not doing too bad and staying healthy. More or less. Well, that's all we can hope for right now. So what topic do you want to start with? Let's start with some extremophiles. Oh, I do love me some extremophiles. What's, what was your favorite news article for extremophiles? Mine was putting blue-green algae in space teaches us how life responds to harsh environments by Rebecca Rashid. So there's blue-green algae called... Crococidoposis. Thank you. And though they are extremophiles that live in rocks in the desert of Israel. These microbes were... I thought algae was like marine. Right? They live in the desert? Yeah, that really threw me off. That's very interesting. So they don't need any water to survive. I mean, they probably need some, but um, much less than what you would normally think of. They live inside of the rocks or on the rock surface? Inside the rocks. Weird. Yeah. So scientists took these microbes and uh, air-dried them. They mixed them with either sandstone, lunar regolith, or nothing and experimented on them in outer space. I kind of just picture like someone with a hair dryer, like air-drying the, the rocks. Yeah. Uh, that <laughs> That's was, probably not how they do it, huh? That was the undergrad's job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here at the hair dryer for a couple hours. <clears throat> they found that those... Uh, uh, that were mixed well with the rock or regolith survived extreme UV radiation. What is regolith? I don't know. I'm not too familiar with the uh, soil ecology, so that's something I need to look up. Oh, yeah. They found that those microbes survived for two years in outer space, uh, allowing s- scientists to speculate that they can use the moon as a test site, trying to understand the origins of life. So kind of going back, I think uh, lunar regolith may be a mixture that's similar to the moon. Oh. Didn't they? They just found that um, Dianococcus radiocurans could also survive in outer space. They did? Yeah, I think that one was outside of the International Space Station. And uh, they found that it survived for a whole year. And they were looking at kind of the metabolites and the genome was kind of um, changing over the course of the time that it was outside to protect itself from the radiation. Oh, that's pretty cool. So that's two pieces of news that came out recently about microbial survival. I definitely think that if we're going to find life outside of Earth, it's going to be microbial. I agree with that. They're just so good at adapting to extreme conditions. So do you want to hear what my favorite news article was from in the... uh, is this called Category of Extremophiles and Space Groves? <laughs> Hit us with it. So mine is about water bears. You know how much I love water bears. Oh, yeah. So they found, I mean, water bears, if you don't know, they're also called what, moss piglets and tardigrades um, are some of their other names. And they are, in my opinion, the poster child of extremophiles. They're adorable. They're easy to find out when you have a microscope and a little bit of moss anywhere. Um, and they're, they're just so cute. To be honest, I prefer the name moss piglets over water bears. Yeah, it's much cuter. It is. So 
Um, the reason why they're the poster child of extremophiles is because they can survive in so many different environments. So they've been known to survive in space and they've been known to survive in ultra cold and ultra hot areas. Um, but they've actually found that they can survive under UV radiation as well. And so this was a accidental discovery, much like penicillin and the microbes that eat magnet, not magnets, metal. Metal. The metal eating microbes that they found earlier in the summer. This is an accidental discovery by researchers at the Indian Institute of Science. And so this new species of tardicate, tardigrade, can survive one kilojoule per square meter of UV. Most bacteria would die in about five minutes at this dose. And other tardigrades, because they can survive much higher than other bacteria, other tardigrades could survive 15 minutes. So this is a new superpower of tardigrades. So they found a new species that can survive in uh, even more intense extreme conditions. So the researchers attribute this superpower to fluorescent pigments, which seem to capture the UV light and change it into something harm a harmless blue light. So when they look at them, they actually glow blue, like oh, a nightlight. That's really cool. I was actually thinking the other day, you know how they have nightlights for kids in different arrangements or like little trucks or lighthouse? Yeah. They should totally have one with the tardigrade and it like glows blue. That'd be amazing. Yeah, we should... Um, patent that <laughs> <laughs> i really also like how tardigrades are so versatile and they're also also multicellular as well yeah so they're i just think they're really amazing and an interesting species that we're learning so much about in the last couple years so what's your next uh category that you like to talk about uh you want to dive into some medical microbiology sure all right. You want to go first or should I go first? Mine's a COVID one. Why don't you go? All right. So I think I actually got this from another podcast that they were discussing the early approval of COVID-19 vaccine could cause ethical problems for other vax candidates. And so this was a conversation with Sarah Crespi, Megan Cantwell, and John Cohen. And so in the podcast, they asked the question, what happens to all the other COVID-19 vaccines when one of them gets approved? Do you know? Actually, I don't really know that much about the pipeline of other companies trying to make vaccines. Yeah, I think this is an interesting story. This is kind of the first time where a vaccine has been put so much in front of the public as far as how do we develop vaccines and what happens to them and how, how long does it take? And so I think this is um, a really interesting case study with, uh, that a lot of people are, are spending hours and days just listening to information about. So everyone knows Operation Warp Speed uh, is, is trying to get a vaccine out as fast as they can for COVID-19. And they really are banking on one vaccine to rule them all. But there may be very good reasons to continue to invest in other trials. There are currently, and um, this podcast was maybe a week or two ago, but at that time there were 42 clinical trials, and 10 of which are in the final stages, so that's phase three of testing according to WHO. And in most vaccine trials, there is a placebo, there is a control group, and a group which receives the potential vaccine. 
The goal is to have people given the vaccine 100% unaffected by the, vac by the disease. However, the standard is only at a 50% efficacy. So if you can prove that the people who are given the vaccine are 50%, um, the vaccine is 50% effective, it, it protects 50% of the um, participants, then that is enough. Is it though? It's, I mean, it's not really, but that is, that is enough to kind of move forward and to continue on um, with the vaccine. Because in the US, there's a threshold usually of how the percent efficacy before you can put it out to market but maybe this is extreme circumstances well i think it's also the that this is so novel that there is no baseline 50 percent is a lot better than nothing that is true um so it's so they kind of went into that a little bit and said well once you get one that's 50 percent now the next vaccine has to beat 50 percent but um you know zero to 50 percent is a very big range 50 to 60% is a kind of small range. And, and so at what point does that now beat the previous vaccine as being more effective? So um, in order for the vaccine to be effective, you have to have members of the placebo group actually become symptomatic, um, which has its ethical issues in it, especially when you're starting to see vaccines that are working. And if you have people in your vaccine trial who are in the placebo group and they're getting sick, Whereas another company or another vaccine is starting to um, show that it is effective enough, at what point do you stop your vaccine trial to give the placebo group this other vaccine? And so I thought that was a really interesting um, debate uh, and that I'm sure a lot of companies are going through right now. So most vaccines need to have 150 events. And in this case, an event is when someone becomes symptomatic because you can't prove that your vaccine is protecting participants until you know not having the vaccine is causing symptoms, right? right? So it's like in order to test that a vaccine is working, you have to show that the disease, that other people are still getting the disease at a higher incidence. So I thought that was kind of, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's such an ethical dilemma to think of like, in order to save millions, you have to have these volunteers say that they're willing to get this disease. Which is very brave, I, I would think, because you're willingly putting your life at risk. It, chances are you're not gonna get severely sick, but still, the chance is there. Yeah, and so I think that is, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's something that we don't normally think about when you think of volunteering for a vaccine. You're like, great, I'll get the vaccine before everybody else and I'll be protective. And it's like, well, that's only if you get put into that group that gets the vaccine. And if that vaccine works, more likely than not, it either doesn't work or you get into the placebo group and then you people are just kind of waiting to see if you get sick. Right. What I think is also interesting I, I don't know if it's interesting. I think it's interesting about uh, this pandemic is there's been a light that's been shined on the differences between age groups, particularly when finding this vaccine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at vaccines and they generally target healthy, you know, young to middle-aged uh, individuals, but the outliers are infants and chil uh, small children and the elderly. And what's been coming to light is their immune systems act differently 
than a regular adult. You even see different levels of um, immune chemicals being produced or which immune cells are activated during an immune response. Yeah, which is one of um, what John Cohen was saying as one of the, the biggest ethical problems with this is if you stop a particular vaccine because it is being effective, you don't know if one of those other vaccines would have been better for people um, of color or for the elderly or for different um, populations. And so stopping a trial before it's completely done, you can't answer these questions and you kind of never know. Um, but on the flip side, you're also, you need that placebo group to continue not having a vaccine. So you're continuing to put them at risk to see how your vaccine might protect different populations differently than what's already out there. And I really hope that companies take this into effect because a lot of drugs that are tested out, out there that go on the market generally only get a small group of people. And when you read into it, some companies don't make it as diverse as it should be. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, in the last six to nine months when all the COVID vaccine participation trials are really getting together, I think that has come to light. Uh, and I do think there's a number that we've seen a lot of huge human trials. I think like Johnson and Johnson's like thousands of people. They're really trying to um, get an idea of all the different populations that we have, uh, which I think is really, really important. But again, you can only take so many people. Um, it's very expensive. And um, so, yeah, it's all based on what they can do in the trials. And hopefully it all pans out to the entire population the way that they see in the science. And then I just want to like close on this topic by saying, you know, even if we get a vaccine and it's 50%, effective or 60% effective um, social distancing and masks are way more effective than that. So <laughs> for all of you out there, just keep social distancing and wearing a mask and the vaccine will come and the vaccine will come and hopefully it saves us all from this new normal that we all hate. And trust me, I know everyone, it's difficult, but it's better to be safe than get your... Than dead? Well, yeah, that or infect your loved ones. True dat. So my story is uh, the Nobel uh, awarded to Charles Rice for hepatitis C discoveries at Washington University School of Medicine. Oh, I think I heard about this one. <clears throat> yeah, so Charles Rice was one of three scientists that was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine October 5th, 2020 for his seminal work in the discovery of hepatitis C. Prior there wasn't a hepatitis C before this? There's A and B. Well, yeah, so they knew of A and B. Uh-huh. Um, and there's vaccines for... A and B. A and B. Right. Okay. So they knew of A and B, but there were cases of this chronic hepatitis. And if you don't know what that is, hepatitis is inflammation of the liver. Um, that's why you get uh, hepatitis A, hepatitis B. They all cause that, hence the name. So they were finding that uh, there were cases of unexpected or unexplained uh, chronic hepatitis occurring up to decades after a blood transfusion. And there, are other, there were other scientists that were able to find that there was a virus there and they tried to sequence it, but it was an incomplete one. And Rice was the one who showed uh, the hepatitis uh, C alone could cause hepatitis. He recognized... Uh, 
that the viral genome that was sequenced was incomplete. Uh, this is because he had worked on other viruses that were very similar to hepatitis C. And so he was able to engineer a complete genome and then demonstrate uh, that this was, in fact, the virus uh, and he could infect other primates. So do you know if this was like a really small genome and, and that's why they never really found it before or it just was never found in complete form in blood samples? You know, I I have to say I don't know. I'm not that good when it comes to virology. Yeah, virology is hard. Yeah, and you're also talking about this was decades ago when uh, sequencing wasn't nearly as sophisticated or as reliable as it is nowadays. Actually, I want to take back my answer. Virology is just underrepresented. I don't want to, I don't want to say it's hard, but like out of all the micro classes, it's always bacteria and then fungal, and then just a little bit of virology. Well, I'm gonna stay with my statement that virology is hard. I mean, it is hard, but it's also, it's just not as easily accessible, I feel, as far as there's, there's a lot less classes. Right, yeah, generally, what's, what's the easiest when it comes to a microbiology class? You're gonna work with bacteria and then possibly fungi. You have to take a virology course in order to work with a virus. Yeah. Um, so he also said that he, when the call came, it was four o'clock in the morning and he did not pick up the phone because he thought it was a prank call. <laughs> Only the second time they called, he did pick up and to his amazement, it was uh, the Nobel. Dude, he must have been stoked. I, if that would happen to me, I'd probably be kind of out of it and thinking it was a dream. I totally would think it was a prank call and like call him out and be like, don't call his number ever again. Right. And then I'd be like, damn it. But because of the research that him and other the other three laureates did, uh, we saw sensitive blood tests and antiviral drugs that were able to be developed due to their discoveries. And right now there isn't a hepatitis, there is not a hepatitis C vaccine, but there is a medication now that pretty much cures it. Wow, good job to Charles Rice then. Right. You want to talk about food? Let's go into food and agriculture. Cool, cool. You go first. All right. So the article that I found most interesting was transparent soil-like substances provide window on soil eco ecology from eLife transparent transparent like they can see through it they can which is really weird how is it soil then it's soil substitutes oh that's like that like almond milk is a substitute for real milk yeah kind of like that so scientists developed two transparent soil substitutes one being a synthetic called nafion while the other was uh cryolite, a natural crystal. And by using these substances, they were able to visualize live bacteria in the substitutes and also measure the overall meta metabolic activity. They were, they were actually- Wait, were the bacteria in the substitute already or they put the bacteria in the substitute to see if they could see them? 
They put the bacteria into the substitute to yeah. see if they can see them. Okay. They see, saw them with what? A microscope? Yeah, you could see them under a microscope. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if they did some sort of um, molecular as a seeing. Um, but the scientists also showed that the bacteria were able to survive in dry periods by interacting with fungi. In particular, they um, survived because they were feeding off of dead fungi and they were able to visualize this. And I think this could be revolutionary in ecology because we know that there is such this interconnection between microbes and plants. And to be able to visualize it, we can go even further down uh, seeing how the microbes are day-to-day -day interacting with each other in, in uh, what you, not live time, real time. In real time. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Do you know if these soils are on the market yet or still waiting on the patent? I think they're probably still waiting on the patent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be really interesting to see how these transparent soils might be used in future research and studies. So mine... Uh, story in food and agriculture is also about interactions between bacteria and fungi. Yeah, what is it? So mine is, do you like mushrooms? Love mushrooms. Do you know, this is my fun fact, it has nothing to do with the thing, white button mushrooms and portobello mushrooms are the same mushroom. What? I know, mind blown. Basically, white button mushrooms are babies. And then the portobellos are the old geezers. They taste so different. Yeah, but they're the same thing. That's so weird. Do you know what brown blotch is? I do not know what a brown blotch is. So brown blotch is a disease that impacts the mushroom industry, particularly our white button mushrooms. It is caused by a pseudomonas known as Pseudomonas talassi. And talassi is a name of the toxin, which is actually talosin, not talasi, but it's pretty close. Close enough. So what this toxin does is when it gets onto the white button mushrooms, it actually creates pores. So it kind of drives through the cells of the mushroom, um, causing them to die, and that's why you get these brown blotches. So this can be a really harsh disease uh, in the mushroom industry. Um, and typically, in a lot of plant pathogen interactions, growers will add a lot of pesticides in order to diminish the population of the path pathogen or the pests that might be vectoring the pathogen. But what they found, so this was, it, this is a paper that was by Ron Hermanu, Susan Krugel, Anna J. Comer, and Christian Hartwick. And so they looked at another bacteria, which belonged to the group Mycidacola, um, and they saw that this could actually sabotage the toxin. And so I kind of like to think of this, like Pseudomonas talassi, the causative agent of brown blotch, is like this little, is like a bomber, right? It's going in, it's, it's dropping its bomb and causing these necrotic, these necrotic um, spots, these brown blotch spots. And the other thing that Pseudomonas talassi has is that it can move about. So it's got really high mobility, which means it can spread across the whole mushroom surface relatively quickly. What 
Mesitocola does, and this is what they found out in the paper, is that Mesitocola is like a bomb diffuser. So it like sits there with the red wire and the blue wire, and it's like, which one? And then it cuts the one, and the bomb doesn't go off. Nice. And um, that analogy is actually pretty close. So they used Molotov, um, uh -huh. which is basically shooting a laser at a molecule, and it sends it to a gaseous state, and then they look at how fast that molecule travels. So they can tell, they knew how fast Tolosi was, um, Tolosin was. So when they put Mesitocola on the mushroom, or on, um, I think they used potatoes too. So when they put Mesitocola with the Pseudomonas Tolosi and then looked at the Tolosin molecule, they found that it slowed down. So effectively, what Mesitocola was doing was clipping or, or cleaving the um, toxin so it became, so it wasn't circular anymore. It was linear and this slowed it down. So researchers also found that in the presence of Mesitocola, the pathogen was not able to move. They also linked this to Mesitocola's ability to cut a circular molecule into a linear one. And so this molecule was pseudo pseudodesmin A, and when it's clipped, authors called it pseudodesmin C. So I thought this was a pretty interesting um, paper looking at how bacteria can take a pathogen or take molecules created by a pathogen and render them useless. So now the pathogen's not really a pathogen. It's not causing any harm to the host. Do you know what a pseudodesmin does for the... Pseudomonas strain? Yeah, so it, it allows the pseudomonas to move. So they showed that when you clip pseudodesmin, the pseudomonas will actually not swarm a plate. It will not move across a, an auger plate. It will stay in one distinct colony. All right, so that's my story on um, pseudomonas talassi and acetacola and mushrooms. So let's move to environmental marine microbiology. All right, we're gonna talk about pirates. Ooh, pirates? Yeah. How nice. do you think pirates, um, pirate microbes? Oh. <laughs> Not real pirates. So, but similarly to pirates that we know, um, there's a limited resource and people who don't have resources can jump on a boat and go steal those resources from other people. Nothing like a good old pillage. Yeah. So we call these pirates. And so this happens on a microbial scale as well, uh, particularly with iron. So iron is essential for microbial life, but is all often in limiting usable quantities in the environment. To harvest iron, microbes create specialized compounds called siderophores. So the paper that we're talking about is siderophore piracy enhances vibrio cholera environmental survival and pathogenesis. And this is by Hunante Bayan, Aiji Jong, Jin Dong Chen, Jesse Laros Valencia, and Jezu. So um, we talk about Vibrio cholera quite a bit on this podcast. We do. It is has kind of a special spot, I think, in both of our research histories. I think this particular one does because Jezu uh, was the private investigator for my previous boss. Yeah. And so you studied cholera in your master's. I did. Um, and I looked at cholera in an environmental setting in my undergrad. So... It's a link that kind of ties us together, <laughs> I guess. Um, so Vibrio cholera has a siderophore, which is called Vibrio pactin. 
and the authors in the paper showed that V. cholera flourishes by stealing other sideriformes rather than just using its own. So it's a pirate. They need a picture out there with uh, Vibrio with uh, eye patch. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. If not, SciArt, hashtag SciArt. And send it, it to us. us. Yeah, send it over. We'd love to see it. So they found that V. cholera grew with other microbes, which produced sideriformes, and saw this enhance V. cholera's growth suggesting that V. cholera is a sideriform pirate, stealing limited resources from other microbes. I bet you that happens a lot more than we're aware of. Yeah, I think you're right, because until really recently, I never heard of anything like this. Yeah, but yeah, I think as we get um, better at understanding the microbial world, I think we're going to start to see how similar they are to humans and and their need to um, flourish with resources and protect themselves and have relationships with their neighbors. Sometimes, well, I should say microbes need to survive. Sometimes they find a very specific niche and others are pretty aggressive about getting what they need. Yeah, just like people. Just like people. And as a side note, if you're interested, look up videos for sideriformes. It's kind of cute. I don't know if I've ever seen a video on sideriformes. I remember it's this like little itty bitty thing coming from the cell wall and squiggles out and then squiggles back in. I think I've like seen some adaptations where it's like a grappling hook, like Batman, and like throws it out and then like pulls it in. (laughs) I think that's a much better illustration. (laughs) So, what is your article in the world of marine microbiology? So it's it's short, but. It is coral researchers find a link between bacterial genus and disease susceptibility. So scientists have found a new genus of what they call parasitic bacteria, Candidiasis aquaricita. Candidiasis aquaricidesia. Yes. Riquetia. Tesses are genus specialist. I just say things really fast and blur my words enough. (laughs) And they thrive when coral reefs are polluted with nutrients. Well, that's not good. No. This is not a microbe you want around, huh? No. And they found that uh, an abundance of this bacteria is uh, a marker for disease susceptibility in Caribbean stranghorn coral. And this is seen particularly in times of heat stress which shows a loss of dominant species in the coral's microbiome, allowing this genus to proliferate. Which is probably going to have even bigger of an impact as we continue global warming of the oceans. Yeah, as you see more coral bleaching, this may be uh, may show up more and more and more. And this, you know, is kind of analogous to what we see with uh, C. diff in people. How so? C. diff is not that uncommon of a gut microbe in humans. It uh, colonizes up to 10% and it just lives there. But uh, things like antibiotic treatment uh, can have an effect, um, adverse effect of decreasing the diversity of your microbiome, which allows it to grow out of control. Oh, I see the analogy now. Yeah. Interesting. And I'm not too sure, but I... I don't know if I would consider this a parasitic bacteria. Well, I think, like everything beneficial, 
parasitic pathogen, any category we label a microbe in, it's only in that category in a certain scenario, right? In an environment. So yeah, they say it's more abundant when the diversity is less. So maybe it's not as parasitic, but more of a sign of disease. It definitely can be used as a biomarker for polluted waters, I would think, and for a biomarker for the coral health. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Yeah, so that's interesting. Should we move on to our final category? Let's go to the last one. All right, so our final category is biotech and microbial products. Um, so I actually, mine is not a microbial product or really biotech, but I thought it was really interesting and I wanted to share it with everyone anyways. What is this interesting factoid you're talking about? So this is all about dogs and COVID. So um, dogs have really great sense of smell. Did you know that? I don't know if you've ever seen a dog, but they love smelling things. Our dog smells everything a little too much. Yeah, so dogs are, they have these great olfactory glands that are able to pick up smells and senses that we cannot pick up as humans. And people are not able to replicate, even with machinery, um, the, the olfactory glands of a dog. And so dogs have been used, I mean, everyone knows dogs are used to sniff out drugs in, in um, airports. Forgot what that was called because it's been so long. Since Drug I... sniffing dogs? No, no, I mean airport. I forgot the word oh. airport because it's been so long since <laughs> I've actually traveled. I was like that airplane place, airport. Um, so we all know that dogs can sniff drugs on airports. Um, they've been used recently to sniff out Huanglongbing, which is devastating the citrus industry. And now they're starting to use dogs to detect COVID-19. Um, so this was by this was an article by Gabrielle von Roche, um, and it's entitled "Dogs Can Detect COVID-19 Quicker and More Accurately Than Nasal Swabs." And so our current diagnostic methods for COVID-19 are not always accurate, as we've all kind of seen. You can show up negative and then show up positive, and we switch from nasal to uh, oral. throat to oral. So as the disease as a pandemic has progressed, we've learned more and more about COVID-19 and we've changed our diagnostic techniques. But there is still a, um, a pretty big gap and it's not as accurate as we would all hope. So they're using dogs. Um, so this is scientists from Finland to France have found dogs can detect COVID in people before they start showing symptoms and even when PCR tests come back negative. The olfactory glands of dogs are far superior of our own. And when you get sick or have a disease, your odor changes. Oh yeah, Cliff the C. diff sniffing dog. That was the first dog I learned who was able to sniff out diseases, which I think is like, so interesting because like there is a certain when you're really really sick i can definitely like know that the the aroma changes like i don't i smell bad (laughs) i know that but like when you're not showing any symptoms like what is the point when you start smelling um differently so i mean dogs can figure out a lot sooner than we can or like the cats or dogs that like know when someone's going to die before anyone else does and they like sit by their side yeah, it's, it's crazy like how they know stuff days before we can even pick it up. Yeah, 
So animals are amazing. That's pretty much the whole story. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so they're they're training dogs um, to detect COVID in people, and they're training them, I, I believe, on spit of um, positive or negative patients to get what that aroma is. So unlike PCRs, which can take days because you have to collect the sample and then you have to put it in the machine, you have to wait for the results to be come back and then you have to update the deba- databases. If a dog can, can um, diagnose you with COVID, they're going to do it right there. They're going to bark at you and they're going to tell their owner and then you know or you don't know. I mean, you should probably also do a PCR test, but yeah. it's still pretty like it's a fast turnaround time. Yeah, you're talking about uh, you can isolate a lot quicker right then there if you know that you have COVID. Yeah, or at least, um, you know, if a dog says that someone might be positive for COVID and they're in a public space, you can remove them from that public space right there and then go get that PCR test to confirm. Right. Um, Which could save hundreds of lives if you can remove people that are not showing symptoms and don't know that they're COVID positive from public areas. Um, much quicker that definitely has its merit what is not so fast though is the time it takes to train a dog oh yeah so not and not every dog can be trained to sniff out covid or hlb or drugs these these things take a lot of training they take a lot of discipline not all dogs can do it and so what would be even better is if researchers could produce the, um, some sort of machinery that can mirror the olfactory glands of dogs. Um, and then we could have these in public spaces across the world. Right now, if we only have oh, a dozen dogs, it doesn't really help the global pandemic. No, it'd be cool if they could de- develop a device kind of like a breathalyzer almost, except for alcohol, you're testing COVID. Yeah, yeah. So I think that adds a lot of interesting future research. Well, that was a lot of news. So much news. Yeah, I think we're done. Yeah, but at least it was good news. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed this segment of Microbigales, the microbe moment. So thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share at least one of these facts with a friend. You can find us at microbigales.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so you can find us there. So remember, feed your mind, feed your guts, make your microbes microbes love you lots. lots. Bye. Bye!